Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 21st, 2019, and this is show number 728. Well, I have to put the information about Chit Chat Across the Pond this week in future tense. Bart and I recorded most of an episode of Programming by Stealth, but it just didn't go well. To be honest, I got confused, and when I get confused, sometimes I allow myself to get cranky. The episode was going on far too long during the reprise of the homework from last week, and we were running out of time to get to the new material where we were supposed to be learning about Ajax. The good news is that Bart suggested we abandon ship and start over completely on Monday when he happens to be taking the day off, and I don't have family at the house, and so we've got plenty of time, and we expect to have a lot more fun. He's reworked the show notes in hoping, uh, hopes of making me less confused and will be refreshed and ready to go on Monday. I'm not going to apologize for the delay of game because you're going to get a far more interesting and instructive podcast than if we'd shipped what we'd recorded on Saturday. I guarantee it. So on Monday night, look for Programming by Stealth installment 76 about Ajax in your podcatcher of choice, either under the Programming by Stealth feed or the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed, Dealer's Choice. And of course, it'll also be posted at podfeed.com. Well, there's only three months left until MacStock Conference and Expo in Woodstock, Illinois, right outside of Chicago. So it is time to make plans. MacStock is one of the big highlights of my year and for Steve and for a lot of people. It's a gathering of Apple fans from literally around the world who get together for 48 hours of education and fun. The format of the conference is really interesting. In the morning, all of the attendees gather in a large auditorium where we all get to watch 20-minute presentations by these amazingly talented speakers. In the afternoons, there are usually two tracks of deep dives by the same speakers. It's cool because you get motivated to learn more by the short introductions, but then get to really learn the details and dig in and even ask questions during the deep dives. Let me give you the speaker list. Many of these people have been known to dance around in their Nocilla Castaways groups on Facebook and Slack and other places from time to time. We've got Rick Cartwright, who happens to be in the uh, live audience right now in the live show. And we've got, uh, let's see, Tim Robertson, Mike Schmitz, Wally Chirwinski, Kirshen Sia, Dave Ginsberg, who is also in the live audience right now, Stephen Hackett, Allison Sheridan, who is also in the live audience. Uh, we have Chuck Joyner, David Sparks, Rosemary Orchard, Brett Terpstra, and Josh Wrench. And all of these people are amazing. I mean, really, really good speakers. Now, in the middle of all this serious learning, Guy Searle and Tim Robertson do the MyMac.com game show, which is hilarious. Now, in theory, it's a trivia game, but everyone yells out answers, and the answers of, of Tim and, and Guy are sometimes wrong, and that's even funnier, and it's just mostly frivolity, and I absolutely love it. There are even prizes. Well, at night, there are tons of activities put on Barry Folk, by Barry Folk. We've had karaoke, board game rooms, and even more frivolity. I think the evening activities are my favorite part because you go to these these sessions and you learn a lot. And you sit next to somebody, you start hanging out with them, you go have beers, you go, you know, hang around and have some fun. And, and, and these people all have the same interests in the Mac and iOS. But when you go out, you find out about what else they do for fun and for work and you learn all kinds of stuff. Steve and I have made some great new friends at MacStock and we keep hanging on to our old good friends, too. It's just it is awesome. I cannot say enough great about MacStock Expo. Now, if I haven't convinced you to sign up yet, how about a discount code? 
If you use the discount code PODFEET at checkout at MaxDocExpo.com, you get an extra $10 off the already discounted early bird ticket price. Until April 30th, that makes the total price $169 for a whole weekend's worth of learning and fun. I mean, come on, $169, that's practically zero. Now, after the early bird sale, if you can't do it till after April 30th, you still get a discount, but the price is going to go up to $179. So maybe you want to get your tickets now, save that extra 10 bucks so you can buy me a beer when we meet. Anyway, last year we had a photo taken of all the nocilla castaways we could round up at MaxDoc, and we had to use a wide angle lens to get them all in. My goal is to have even more nocilla castaways there than ever before. I hope you'll join me and Steve so we can all meet and have some fun together and maybe even learn some stuff. Wait, this just in. Guy Searle is also in the live audience right now. So it's, I mean, it's practically a nocilla castaways party at uh, MaxDoc Expo. So you guys should all come. Every once in a while, I like to go completely off the rails and review something that barely, if at all, overlaps into the technology world. This is one of those times. For Christmas, I asked Steve for the Dyson V7 Motorhead Cordless Vacuum Cleaner in the color fuchsia. Now, I clearly remember when I was a kid watching Let's Make a Deal. Someone would have a choice of three doors and they would pick the one with the goat and be really disappointed that they didn't win the washer-dryer combo. I thought they were nuts. Why would you not want a goat? That would be awesome. Why would you want something that made you do chores? Well, I posted this uh, article, of course, ahead of time, and uh, I wanted to point out that Marina Eppelman found an XKD, XKCD link to a cartoon that is exactly word for word what I'm talking about, about this person getting a goat and being really happy. So it's not just me that I thought that was really weird. Well, anyway, while I still think it would be pretty cool to have a goat, I now get why an appliance can bring joy. We'll have to get to the problem to be solved before you can get to the joyful part. Let's say you've got cats, as I do, and they seem to find great sport in kicking as much sand out of the litter box as possible when they jump out. Or you've got a dog who has never once been allowed on the couch while you're home, and yet you often catch her with your wise camp snoozing on your couch when you're away. Even without these surveillance cameras, you might be clued in by the dog hair all over the couch when you get home. Or maybe you've got a small child prone to knocking over plants or dropping Cheerios and smashing them into dust on the kitchen floor. When faced with these annoyances, you have two choices. A. You can drag out the giant vacuum, which is always farther away than you wish it was. You have to unwrap the 38-foot-long cord, find an open plug that is somehow 37 feet from the mess, and then stretch to clean up that mess and spend about a half hour rewinding that darn extension cord. Or B. You can pretend the mess isn't there and wait till it's time to do a full vacuum of the house, making it worth all the trouble of getting out the vacuum and winding up that, uh, that cable. Well, if you're lucky enough to have a housekeeper, maybe you wait until he or she comes to clean up clean up after you. Well, I can tell you I'm much more prone to option B because it is such a pain to get out the real vacuum. I even have a Dyson, which is a glorious piece of machinery for vacuuming carpets, but it's heavy, especially problematic if that mess in question happens to be upstairs and it doesn't do well at all on tile, which is where the rotten cats play in the cat litter. I also have a central vacuuming cleaning system, but I can tell you that winding up the hose is a huge deterrent that makes it really easy to procrastinate rather than doing the cleaning that I should be doing. Well, back in 1979, Black and Decker invented the Dustbuster to solve this very problem. They came up with this small, handheld, battery-operated vacuum that was a dream come true. 
but it really only did the small handheld jobs, and we've got more problems to solve than that. Enter the most awesome vacuum I have ever owned, the Dyson V7 Motorhead. The beauty of the Motorhead design is that it can be a small handheld unit or a full-length vacuum that reaches the floor with a long tube. It's so versatile that you can stand and vacuum the couch with the handheld part or vacuum the floor without bending over. Heck, you can add attachments to the long floor tube and reach the corners of the ceiling to get that creepy spider. Now, we should talk about the attachments because, again, they spark joy. They attach with a very satisfying red click button. My central vacuum uh, hose attachments only go on with friction and they fall off all the time and the tube kind of gets bent so it doesn't stick right. And I'm always having to shove them back on. With the V7 Motorhead, that satisfying click tells me it's on until I want it off. I know this sounds like a small thing, but it's joyful if it makes you want to use it. I got the V7 Motorhead with Mattress Tool Bundle, which includes the brushy floor vacuum piece thingy, you know, the thing that kind of twirls around. It's also got a narrow attachment tool, the, the one that makes it go real fast, little thin things so you can get in corners, and a small round brush and what they call the Mattress Tool, but I call it the get Tesla's hair off the couch tool. The V7 Motorhead is battery operated, so you have no long extension cord to deal with as you move around and no long hose to wind up when you're done. Steve used the included wall mount to put it up in our laundry room. The mount is really cool because it holds all of the attachments, and of course, the red click button is what holds each attachment into the wall mount. You pop the vacuum in and out, and automatically when you pop it in, it's charging when you have it in the mount. Very, very slick. One of the other annoying things about vacuuming is dealing with the disposal of the things you sucked up. The V7 Motorhead makes this as easy as possible. I'm not going to quite go for sparking joy with this one because it's still gross, but it's as painless as it could be made. As with all vac Dyson vacuums, they have a clear chamber so you can see what's swirling around inside that you've captured. You kind of feel like it's satisfying to see, look at all that junk I caught up. It's really, really kind of a neat feature. Anyway, there's no need to wonder if it's full. You can see when it needs to be emptied. With the attachments off, you walk to a trash can, hopefully outside because there's probably going to be dust, and you simply pull up on the top of the vacuum. The bottom of this cylinder pops open and drops all of the nasty stuff out. You then push the top back down and flap the bottom closed, and you're ready to do more spider hunting. The V7 Motorhead also has a removable filter that ensures, I'll put this in quotes, ensures that the air leaving the machine is cleaner than the air you breathe, and it can be removed and cleaned. You know, we probably should clean that filter one of these days. I'd kind of forgotten about that. Well, in practical use, I can say that I'm cleaning up after the rotten cats probably two or three times a week now when I used to do it maybe every two weeks before, you know, like when company was coming over. Now, we do have a housekeeper, and she really likes it for getting the pet hair off the couches and for doing the tile floors. She has found that the battery won't last through both of those projects, though. Her strategy is to do one of the jobs right away, put it back on the charger while she does other chores, and by the time she's ready to do the second job, it's charged enough to complete it. Now, I tried using the V7 Motorhead to vacuum my car, and it is not the right tool for the job. It's too big, really, to be able to manipulate into the corners and get around the seats and such. It's pity, really, because I hate dragging out the vacuum hose to do my car. I've needed to vacuum that car for almost two weeks, and I haven't gotten around to it yet because I don't want to get the vacuum hose out. Well, anyway, if you've ever priced anything by Dyson, you'll know that they are very expensive. 
The Dyson V7 Motorhead with Mattress Tool Bundle is $300 on Amazon. But I know two other people who have this vacuum, and they both swear by it too, so it's not just me. If you can find a device that sparks joy when doing icky chores, maybe it's time to make your life a little easier. know the struggle of the blue bubble versus the green bubble people in messages. You love your Android friends, and they may even be family. There's all the stress of how threads get splintered and people get left out because of the blue-green issue. I know someone who went away to college as a die-hard Android fan, but I actually switched to iPhone because he kept getting left out of activities and parties. That just isn't right. Well, I wish I could tell you a tech trick that would solve all of this, but I don't have one. I do have a tech trick that might help with one very minor problem when talking about our Android brethren over messages. If you're of a certain generation that would be significantly younger than me, you may find it easy to type long messages on your iPhone. It's even natural for you. But I like to type on my Mac's full keyboard whenever humanly possible. I was delighted when messages came to the Mac because I could text all of my friends and family just as if they were on AOL back in the day. Contrary to Apple's claim, you can't always text in messages with green bubble Android friends from your Mac. There, I put a link in the show notes to an article where they say that you can, but it's not true. Sometimes you can, but a lot of times you can't. I haven't found the exact pattern to when it does and doesn't work, but it's always frustrating when it fails. I know you can't initiate a new conversation from your Mac to Android, but sometimes you can reply to an existing thread, and sometimes you can't. I have a long thread going with my lovely housekeeper, Rocio. In preparation for writing up this tiny tip, I replied on that existing thread using my Mac. I told her I was testing something and asked her to respond if she received the message. I expected it would fail, but she replied and said she received it. Okay, great. But when I wrote back thanks to that very same thread from my Mac, it got a red exclamation point next to it and it said, not delivered. As I said, I have not found the pattern. And this example suggests to me that maybe there isn't a pattern at all. Now, I can't permanently fix the intermittency of this not working, but I do have a workaround that will let you use your Mac keyboard and still send messages reliably to your Android friends. It's a workaround, as I said, so it's only useful for long conversations where you need to write a lot. The trick is to use Apple's built-in tool called Handoff. Handoff is part of what Apple calls continuity. Continuity was introduced in iOS 8 and OS 10 Yosemite. Now, as Apple explains it on their support page, with Handoff, you can start work on one device and then switch to another nearby device and just simply pick up where you left off. Now, in all the examples they gave, I haven't found it to be quite as seamless as described, but it is a way to solve our green bubble problem. Here's the trick. Type out your long and yet poignantly brilliant thoughts to your dear green bubble friend on your Mac. You can type in any macOS app you want. You can try typing it in in messages just in case it's going to work. But you could use, you know, text edit or a scratch email or, like I said, even messages. But you don't have to hit send. When you're done with your witty missive, select the text and copy. Now go over to messages on your iPhone and tap and hold in the same message field on that device. Paste will be an option because the copy buffer from your Mac has magically jumped over to your iPhone with handoff paste away, and hit send. Like I said, if you just need to write thanks, 
It's probably not worth the trouble, but even typing a couple of sentences for me is an absolute tedium on the iPhone keyboard. I have to admit that the main time I use it is when I'm surprised by the failed message error when Messages decides that it doesn't want to play nice between blue-green friends, and I don't feel like typing the message again. I simply copy the failed message from the Mac, and I hit paste on my iPhone. If you want to learn more about Handoff and the other cool things available with continuity between your devices, I put a link in the show notes to the Apple Support article explaining continuity and their article showing the system requirements for continuity. I hope in some small way this tiny tip will bring us closer to learning to live together in peace and harmony, accepting our green and blue bubble friends as equals. A few minutes ago, you just heard me talk about my amazing Dyson V7 Motorhead vacuum, and I'm sure you could tell that I was sincere in my adoration of this product. It's possible that my story of the wonder of cleaning up cat litter inspired you so much that you went to the blog post, linked in your podcatcher show notes now, by the way, to learn more. While there, you may have noticed that I linked to the V7 Motorhead on Amazon, and maybe you thought you'd go take a look, so you followed that link. At this point, if you bought the same vacuum, or maybe another vacuum Amazon suggested, or maybe you didn't buy a vacuum at all, you just bought some cat litter in that session, a small percentage of what you bought would go to help support the podcast. These small percentages really add up. Now, you know I love the Patreon model, but it turns out these little 3% here, 4% there there from Amazon, that adds up to almost the same income as what I get from Patreon. Isn't that cool? If you're from Canada, Germany, or the UK, and you click on any Amazon affiliate links, it will now even take you to your own Amazon store instead of the US store. I am so happy about that too, so click away. Thank you to all of you who remember to click these links when you're inspired, even if it's to buy cat litter. Well, we've got an extra long security bits coming up, so I'm going to shut up now and let Bart come on the show. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. How are you this fine Friday morning, afternoon? Good night. <laughs> I am completely <laughs> confused because it's a long weekend here and I made it even longer by booking some time off before and after. So my body clock Ooh. thinks it's Sunday or something. I don't know what it is. I wanted to watch Star Trek but- yesterday and was really disappointed it didn't exist yet. <laughs> that's funny. That's, that's all it's about, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, I was so looking forward to it. You know, we sat down in front of the telly and I was like, right, put on Star Trek. And Better Half was like, no. Aww. So we had David Attenborough on Netflix instead. Oh, well. Oh, there you go. Oh, darn. Oh, darn. Yeah. I just watched the Star Trek now, by the way. The last episode of Discovery is, oh, my God, good. Yeah, I, for, uh, I don't know if we're up to date or not, but the last <sighs> one I saw was really good. Well, the, the, it, the it, last it, episode, I've just watched it five minutes ago. Okay, so I think I'm one short of that, but that was really good. But anyway, we, it's just not the show about Star Trek. We are going to talk about security and misery and horrible things happening in the world, right? There's some of that. No no denying <laughs> that there is some of that. Um, but uh, I got to do a call out to the Nasilla Castaways first. So we talked last time about um, the uh, New Zealand couple who found, an Air- who found a hidden camera in their Airbnb in Cork, Ireland, unfortunately. And the guy, the father of the family happened to be an IT guy, and he scanned the network using Nmap to find the camera. And people in the Nasilla Castaway group were like, can we do that? Is that something that we can do? Because, you know, that sounds like a good idea in hindsight. Um, 
And the answer is, in theory, you absolutely can, because Nmap is completely free and open source, so absolutely anyone can use it, but it very much falls into the category that I call for nerds by nerds. So pretty much the PBS channel in our Slack group then? Yeah, I mean, it's basically a crude UI around the command line. If you understand the command line, you'll make the UI go. If you don't understand the Nmap command line, the UI is pointless to you because it really is just ornamentation around the command line. But okay. there are other options, thankfully. And the Nasilla Castaways chimed in with quite a few, actually. So um, I, I found one that I still actually use. And myself and yourself talked about it on episode number 383 of this thing called the NoSillaCast. Oh, holy cow. That's a ways back. That's a ways back. It's called iNet Network Scanner. And at the time, it was one of two products I liked. One of them is now dead, but iNet is working away. It isn't sold on my brand new iMac. And it is just really straightforward. You go to the app, you click scan, and it just shows you everything on your network, which is like exactly what you would want for this. But of course, it's a Mac app. So... There is an iOS version of the same app. Um, I haven't used it, but others uh, in the Nasilla cast, uh, in fact, Steve Davidson says, yes, he's used it. It's good. Then uh, Fing Network Scanner was recommended by Alastair in the Nasilla Castaways Slack. And finally, Marianne recommended Network Analyzer, which exists for iOS and Android. And in fact, Fing is also iOS and Android because we do have some non-Apple bias in our community sometimes. I love that. You know what I love even more? There's so much happening in the Slack now that I missed this entirely. I did not. I'm, I've got to go see how this conversation, because I thought I was up to date on everything. I missed all of this. This yeah. is exciting. Well, that's the thing with threaded conversations. and People are actually behaving properly and threading stuff instead of just splattering it all over the general channel. We are doing better at at, uh, at the threading than, than the average bear. I'm in another Slack where it's like, the person who started the Slack isn't doing it. so It's, it's so annoying. Anyway, the other thing is there is also... Um, so last time we linked to an article by Naked Security describing what happened in Cork. Um, but they have a video they do from time to time where they basically get their techie nerds on, put them in front of a camera and have the person behind the camera ask them human questions. Uh, and they did hmm. one of those. It's 15 minutes long on that story uh, for the Airbnb and they talk about network scanners and stuff like that. So people may be interested in that. That is also linked in the show notes. Hmm. So that then takes us on to our medium, which I forgot to actually label as such in the show notes. You're just going to have to pop in the word security medium in front of the word browser there. Um, okay. So there was a lot of kerfuffle because... Two major browsers have made effectively the same change at effectively the same time, and it's making some people very cranky. Um, Steve Gibson nearly lost his ever-loving mind on Security Now. I think he's wrong, but nonetheless. Anyway, this all revolves around a feature of HTML5 called link auditing, which is a euphemism for tracking. Oh, okay. Which sounds like I'd be against it. Only, yeah, I'm not. But let's explain what it is before we go into that. So you've been following along with uh, Programming by Stealth. So you know that to make a link in a web page, you use the anchor tag or the A tag. And you're used to saying A, href equals, and then a URL. So that's the URL the link goes to. There is another attribute since HTML5, which is the ping attribute. And it specifies Hmm. a second URL. And that URL is to be pinged whenever a user clicks on the link. Oh. 
So it allows you to audit which links that lead out of your website people actually use to exit your website. Or if you were Google, Hmm. which search results actually get clicks. Oh. So hence link auditing. Now, this... So the HTML5 spec is actually pretty strict about what happens when you click that ping button. Um, I actually read the spec because Steve Gibson had me so convinced it was evil that I went, hang on a second. And I started doing some more reading and finding myself disagreeing ever more. And so then I actually read the spec. And the spec is actually quite good about these things. Um, So when you click on one of these links with a ping attribute, it causes the browser to do two things. It immediately navigates you to the page you actually want to go to. And it simultaneously sends a ping to the tracker. But the ping is a very small packet that contains, at the very minimum, it contains an HTTP header, which you all now also know about, which is the header ping-2. And that specifies okay. the URL that is being pinged, which might sound strange, but with virtual hosting, that's actually a good thing. Yeah. And then assuming that you're on the same origin and or on a secure website, there's also a ping from, which says the page that you that the ping initiated from, but that's only there if certain security criteria are met. And never, ever, ever is the referrer header set. So there's never a referrer yeah. in one of these pings. I remember, I remember referrer and it, I forget what it is, though. I remember it was a, for some reason we say no referrer, but... Okay, so a referrer is, normally when you click on a link, the page you arrive at, basically, if I put a link on my website to your website, and someone clicks on the link on my website, when they contact your web server, there will be an HTTP editor called referrer, which is misspelt. There's one too few ors, but it's in the spec, and so it is now forever misspelt. Um, oh, I was just about to correct it and thinking that was a typo. Nope, nope. <laughs> it actually says further down the show notes, that's not a typo, it's misspelt in the HTTP spec, and it is now stuck. So refer should have one, two, three, four R's in it, but this refer has three. Yep. Okay. So you'll always spot an HTTP nerd because they can't spell refer. Um, <laughs> it, when, your web, when your web server gets that incoming request, it will have a header that says refer and the, na- and the URL of my website because that's where you came from. Okay. So it allows you to, to tell the source of incoming links to you. It's also, if a web page contains an image... The browser fetches the web page and then it fetches the image. When it goes and fetches the image, it puts the referrer to say what page the image is for, which is why you can have an image which you can see on, say, CNN's website. And if you then take that same URL and pop it into an IMG tag on your website, it comes up as a great big warning, you know, hot linking not allowed or something like that. Well, that's done using the referrer header. Huh. As in the only referrer allowed is CNN.com and any other referrer is told to sod off. That's how you okay. can stop people stealing your links. Hmm. Or hot linking, okay. as it's called. Anyway, so there's no referrer header in a ping. Um, the other really, really important thing to note is that anything you can do with a ping, you can do today by abusing HTTP redirects. So have you ever noticed that on Google, if you go and search Google, the actual URLs, when you click on them, don't go to the page to the search result, they go to some Google URL and then you get redirected from the Google URL to the place you're actually trying to go to. I hate that because I used to be able to uh, right-click on the Google search and get the real URL to paste somewhere and now it's a Google URL. Yeah, 
So the reason for that is because that is how Google and half the planet does tracking these days. They bounce you through a redirect. So they send you to the redirect so the redirect can log everything and it gets a full referrer header. The redirect gets everything. And then it sends you off to the place you actually wanted to go. So that means that it's much slower for you to do that because you've gone to the wrong URL. You have to wait for that URL to fully load and then for it to then tell you the real URL and then your browser has to start over again. So it's definitely slower. And some websites... But everybody does that, right? Lots of people do that. Lots and lots of people do that. And some media sites like, you know, newspapers and all these people who have decided that visitors are to be abused as much as possible in case they may enjoy their visit... Um. Some of them are, <laughs> sorry for my cynicism. That's what it feels like. No, that's what it feels I know. like. You're right. It's like, you hate me. Yeah. Why does no one come here voluntarily? Because you abuse us every time. Anyway, some of these will actually send you through three or four redirects to get as much <sighs> as possible money. And so sometimes it can take a bloody age and you can watch your URL bar flicker, 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 flicker. Finally, I've arrived. So, hmm. I mean, it's not a good experience. And that allows them to actually capture more information than the HTTP ping does. So the HTML5 link auditing is actually better. The other thing is the link auditing happens in parallel. So the browser takes you straight to where you want to go and then sends the ping in parallel. So if the ping is a bit slow, it doesn't hold you up. You're gone. You've done your thing. Also... Hmm. The link, the href, is where you really want to go. So if you go right-click, save link as or whatever, it's the right bloody link. Oh. So it's actually way more user-friendly than all this shenanigans we're doing now. Huh. So they won't use it then? Oh, no, Google are. (laughs) If you go to to google.com in Chrome, you now see the real links and the ping attribute. Really? Yep, I did a view source oh. to make absolutely sure today. If you go to google.com using Google Chrome, you get the real URLs. You'll say ahref equals whatever, where you really want to go, ping equals, and then the Google URL. So they're, they're, wow. so they're, they're using it, but they're, they use browser hmm. sensing to only use it when they're absolutely sure it'll work. Hmm. More on that later. Yeah. Um, so it's actually a much better You're user right. experience. So. The other thing is that the HTML5 spec is actually pretty clear on some other user-friendly things. So I'm going to quote you from the HTML spec. User agents, which is the HTML spec's jargon for browsers. So it says user agents. I'm going to just say browser. Browsers should allow the user to adjust this behavior, that being um, link auditing. For example, in conjunction with a setting that disables sending of HTTP referrer headers based on user preferences, UA's browsers may either ignore the ping attribute altogether or selectively ignore URLs in a list, i.e. ignoring any third-party URLs. In other words, the spec says browsers should be able to apply secure uh, privacy settings to the ping and be entirely in keeping with the spec. It's within the spec to only hmm. allow pings to first-party sites or whatever like that. So... Google would be fine because it's Google pinging Google, whereas, you know, some random site pinging Facebook, your browser can block that entirely within the spec, fully spec compliant. Oh, nice. The spec goes on to say that browsers, in fact, have an obligation to clearly communicate the presence of auditing on a link. So when the ping attribute is present, user agents should clearly indicate to the user. Now, this is a spec, so you know the difference between should and must. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not a must, it's a should, which is a pity. Anyway, when the ping attribute is present, user agents should clearly indicate to the user that the follow that following the hyperlink will also cause secondary requests to be sent in the background, possibly including listing the actual target URLs. For example, 
A visual user agent, i.e. a browser, could include the host names of the target pings along with the hyperlink's actual URL in the status bar or tooltip. So the HTML people are actually saying that when you hover over a link with a ping, you should just mention where it pings to as well. So it could actually be way more user-friendly. Now, I have checked. None of the browsers have taken this should in any way seriously, which is extremely annoying. Well, hang on, hang on. Let's think about normal people. Is this information that normal people need to want to see? Well, anyone who probably anyone not. who hovers over a link to see where it goes wants to see this. No, I don't need to see the ping attribute. Okay, but you don't. Why would I need to see that if I'm just clicking on a link? But I if you're just, just clicking go. on a link, you don't read the tooltip. You don't read the toolbar. It's not for you. But anyone who does care about the tooltip does care about the fact that it's also a ping. Hmm. Right. The tooltip is I a power feature, saying. not not an everyday feature that people use all the time. Those who want it make heavy use of it. Most people never use it. They just click on the link and go where they want to go. Okay. All right. I see your point. So the actual HTT, the actual HTML spec goes out of its way to say how much better this is than what we do at the moment. The ping attribute is redundant with pre-existing technologies like HTTP redirects and JavaScript allowing web pages to track which off-site links are most popular or allowing advertisers to track click-through rates. However, the ping attribute provides these advantages to users over those alternatives. In other words, the ping attribute is better than what we do now because it allows the user to see the final target URL unobscured. It allows the user agent to inform the user about the out-of-band notifications. It allows the user to disable the notifications without losing the underlying link functionality. In other words, you can choose not to be pinged and still get to your final destination. That is impossible with HTTP redirects. Mm-hmm. It allows the user agent to optimize the use of available network bandwidth so the page target loads, so the target page loads faster. In other words, you're not waiting on the bloody redirects to finish loading before you can even start going <laughs> to your final destination. You can go straight to your final destination and do the pinging in the background. So the, <laughs> the spec concludes, thus, while it is possible to track users without this feature, authors are encouraged to use the ping attributes that the user agent can make the user experience more transparent. So this is kind of like, well, we know you're going to want to track them, mm-hmm. right? Because that's kind of how the internet works, and that's how you're going to make your money and your ads and blah, blah, blah. So here's the way you should do it. Yep. Exactly. Huh. So while I initially thought I was going to hate this, I actually wish it was properly implemented. Basically, I want all the browser makers to follow the spec, please. Unfortunately, this is where I cease to be happy. So mm. why is this in the news? Well, it's in the news because two things have happened recently. First, the current version of Google Chrome does enable link auditing by default, but it has a button to turn it off, which isn't keeping with the spec. However, both the beta and the canary versions, i.e. the two next versions to be released in the pipeline, have removed the button. So Hmm. from now forward, Google from the next version of Google Chrome forward, link auditing is on like it or lump it. So, so hang on. Let me remind me again that that the ability to turn off link auditing that was the that was the should, should. kind of thing. Yeah, it wasn't a you have to, and it is up to browser manufacturers to decide whether or not they want to be a privacy browser or not. Mm-hmm. I would think, right? Yep. And oh, obviously, yeah. that wouldn't. It would shock me if Google did have it in there. Why would they? But they ha- they What's did the- until they do now, and they they do now, and they have done since this feature was introduced two years ago. They just now have decided that from the next version on, so the next time Chrome updates itself, it will go away. 
that doesn't seem to be out of concert with what I would do if I were running Google. I mean, that mm-hmm. seems like something that Apple might implement and Google not because their business model well, is different. And that's Apple. okay, right? The latest version of Safari released a few weeks ago, 12.1, also forces link auditing to be enabled. And Safari has never had an easy-to-access button. You always had to use a default.writes to get it off. Well, the default.write is now broken, disabled, turned off. There is no way to stop uh, Safari link auditing. It is welded on. Interesting, interesting. So that's more surprising to me than Google turning it off. It, isn't it? it? It's weird that Google had it and took it out. It's weird that Safari doesn't have it. You would think that'd be one of the things. But I don't know. From your description of the way this link auditing works, it seems to me that there is value to the continued business model of ads on the Internet and that if you had uh, this disabled, wouldn't that stop that? Well, this is not about ads, Alison. This isn't about ads. This is about tracking the links you use to leave web pages. So this is about optimizing your web page for... Because it only this only fires when you click on a link, so this isn't for spying on you as in the strict sense. This isn't a replacement for the Facebook like button following you everywhere. Okay, so but if it's but if it's checking the links that I click, that's how you get paid for ads, no? Um, no, you get paid for ads by arriving on the advertiser's website. From but they they already know where you're coming from. Once you click once you click the actual link, they don't need a oh. ping. You're you're going to oh, them. This is- they're this the is recipient. Allison knowing that that you clicked my Amazon affiliate link and left, not Amazon knowing you came from podfeed.com. Right. Okay. So it's telling a third party that something has happened. It, right. So it's not about the advertiser. It's a, you could you you could use it to tr- you yes you as the owner of podfeed.com could use it to see when someone uses podfeed.com to click on your Amazon link. Right. Right. Okay. Hmm. Where it really comes into its own is on is on websites who who behave as portals, because their aim is to get you to go somewhere else, but they want to know when they do it successfully, and therefore they want to know what outbound links you click. Okay. So Google are the best possible example because the search engine really wants to know where you go. Like, sure. That is that is their whole business is sending you places, and they want to know where you go. Um, so the raison d'être, as it is yes. said. So, but I just I, anyway, just to to finish saying what everyone else is doing, uh, Microsoft Edge have always had it forced on. So Chrome and Safari are now in line with Edge. The notable difference is Firefox, which retains its switch and uh, disables link auditing by default. Uh, oh, interesting. We should also mention that Opera, like Chrome, has had link auditing enabled by default. It did provide an off switch, but its off switch is going away too, because as far as I'm aware, Opera is now just um, Chromium under the hood, which is also going to be true of Microsoft Edge very shortly. Um, which makes me sad. No, actually it makes me extremely happy, because I'm stuck with Windows 10 and working. I'd like a browser that doesn't suck without having to install Google. I didn't say it made you happy. I said, I said it made me sad. Okay, well. because this we're we're heading off into the world where now there is one massive major browser technology, and that could leave um, WebKit uh, 
disabled and and people saying, "Oh, well, I'm not going to write for for web for WebKit." Uh, apart from the fact that iOS, the, the only the only browser, like, if you use Chrome on iOS, you're using WebKit. If you use Firefox, yes, on yes, iOS, I understand that. And 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 for now, right now, the iPhone iOS is obviously a fairly dominant web browser in the mobile space, and mobile is where all the money is. But there will come a time when that's not true. And all of a sudden, we're we're the you know third class citizen who has to beg to be allowed to go into websites again. I, I liked that there were more technologies involved. I dislike intensely. You're, you're leaving out Firefox. Like mobile Firefox is way bigger is than not desktop. a dominant player anymore. Right, but desktop is declining and mobile is increasing. So the yeah. fact that on the on the shrinking desktop pie, more of that pie is going to Chromium. But Chromium is open sourced. It's not Chrome. It's Chromium. So if they begin to act up, they can do what Chromium did in the first place and fork WebKit, because Chromium is WebKit, or it was WebKit, but they forked it. So they can just fork it again. So I, I'm not even who's, slightly who's worried they? about this. Who's anyone, they? Anyone. It's open source. Chromium is open source. Anyone. Yeah, but... Microsoft. Anyone. Okay, but Microsoft's not unhappy if if Safari is deprecated because uh, WebKit is no longer... because Chromium is the dominant player. Okay, but remember, How Chromium is, is WebKit. It's a fork of WebKit that's only about two years forked. Mm-hmm. Which gets farther in the past as time goes on. Sure, but it can be forked again at any time. I'm I'm just not seeing a danger on the horizon because like the trend line is not towards danger. Edge, Edge was it just a train wreck? That's fine. I don't mind if Microsoft does something better. But why but, should they reinvent this? We can, really we can good debate this another there time. In open source. Like, there's a really good open source wheel that they can help make better. I've just... You didn't live through those years, Bart. Right, but that was proprietary tech had locked people in. Chromium isn't proprietary. Chromium is open source. That's different. And I did live through those times. I was even trying to write web pages in the days when you had to have if statements all over the place to deal with bloody IE. No, the IE part you did, but you weren't in the, in the, uh, I'm using Safari and I can't get into websites. They will not load. You were, you were on Windows back then. I used to have to change. Well, I, I remember on early days on the Mac having to change the user agent so that I could masquerade as Internet Explorer to get stuff to work. Okay. Yeah. So I don't want to go back there. We can, we can debate this later. Let's let's move, let's move along. Let's move along. Okay. So bottom line. You are not as freaked out about this as Steve Gibson, but you're cranky with Apple and Google for and and uh, Opera for yeah. shutting off the ability to get rid of it. Would you turn it off if you had the button? I what I would really like is the tooltip so I can see what's pinging what. Actually, that's a bit of the spec. I'd, basically, I'd like them to offer me both of the shoulds, and then I'd be completely happy and leave it on. What would you do with that information, though? I would note it. Sorry, I like to know every what's time going you went to a website. Not any time. When when my when I am concerned that there is that I'm, when I'm in a place where I'm curious as to what's going on, what the business model is, who who follow the money. When I want to see what's actually going on, when I'm evaluating something, right now I have to go and poke around in the dev tools. It would be great to just be able to hover over it. I would also like the ability to say. I have no problem with first-party pings. I don't want third-party pings, which is exactly how I feel about cookies. First-party cookies, fine. Third-party cookies, not fine. I want the same control over pings. It's fine to tell Google when I've left a Google property. It's not fine to tell Facebook when I've left some random website. Hmm. 
So there's a huge difference between third-party pings and first-party pings. One of them I have no problem with. That's helping your website owner make their website better for me, the website user. Third-party pings I do have a problem with. And the spec I, thought, I thought the spec says that they can disable third-party um, pings. You didn't say whether or not the these browser manufacturers are no, turning no, that off. Uh, no, none of them do that. They kind of yeah, they're giving you no control at all. There are no switches. They they have decided. I, I didn't say switches. I didn't say switches. Are they allowing third party pings or not? Yes, absolutely. All pings. Okay. All pings welded right. on. There is there is no okay. There is no dashboard. There is, <laughs> okay. There is no steering wheel. You're in a you're you're in a self driving car and there are there is nothing. It's that Google one. Yeah, I was right. Okay. <laughs> there is no control panel. There is yeah. It's it's on. Yeah, I'm not asking about control panel. I'm just asking what the defaults are of whether or not third-party pings are on or off. Not 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 control panel. Not whether I have a steering wheel. Yeah, yeah, it's it's on. I mean, it's the most simplistic possible implementation. Okay. Okay. Yeah. True. On. You know. Yeah. It's yes. Universally always on. Very simple. Yeah. I mean, when I read the spec. I really like what I read. And when I see the implementation, I just wish they'd taken the shoulds. And I, you're right. I mean, I don't expect much from Google. But Apple, who are going around patting themselves on the back a million and one times over for their privacy stance? Expected to see that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, maybe either change. stop self-congratulating or live up to your hype. Pick one. Yeah. By the way, uh, I... Just check the stats of uh, mobile and desktop browser market uh, share worldwide. Uh, Chrome is over 70% on desktop, and yes. it, it is at 59% on brow- on uh, mobile. So because of Android. if you think that Chrome is not the, the dominant, that's not yeah, but it, right. it, it, Yeah, but only supporting Chrome. As far Chrome, as only 20%. Only supporting Chrome is not is not a viable business model because in terms of making money online, an awful lot of that money comes through uh, Safari. Yet. Yet. That's the thing. I mean, right now, sure. I don't think the I know. I said we should stop talking about yeah. it, but yeah. Mm. Anyway, the, the, there's our security okay. medium for the week is link that was good. That was very interesting. I like that. It's perfect timing, too, because now I get to talk about HTTP headers and you're not going, what now? <laughs> well, there might be a few people in the audience who uh, are not watching security bits. Or, I'm sorry, uh, programming myself. But yeah, well, now we get to say if you're curious about how HTTP headers work, the last episode of Programming by Stealth has no actual programming in it and is all about how HTTP works. Actually, that that's a really good point. That's a really really good point. Yeah, it's a great episode about how HTTP works. Yeah, it is kind of a standalone. Yeah, it just occurs to me now, actually, because we didn't actually put a single line of programming in that entire episode of programming nope, by there's stealth. Not, there's not, not even homework. Okay, so notable security updates. I've introduced a new emoji I'm going to start using in my show notes from now on. Whenever there's a real call to action, I'm going to put the exclamation point in yellow. Yeah, it's a little yellow triangle like a like an emergency cone. Yep, I've decided that because I'm, I'm getting so fond of emoji now. That's another one I've adopted. So there we go. You're going to see that in security bits whenever there's a call to action. Patch, good. Patch Tuesday has been and gone and Microsoft have been busy. Windows, IE, Edge, Office, including two zero days. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And Adobe don't want to be left behind. They have fixed their PDF products. They have fixed Flash. And wait for it. Put on your shoulder pads. They have fixed Shockwave. Shockwave's still alive? Only just. This is the last ever patch of Shockwave. It is now 
deprecated. This is it. This is the final fix. Pour, it is pour a little life. bit out and good riddance. Yes. Uh, it's not 100% dead because anyone who has a support contract, they're going to continue to receive support until their current contract ends, but no contracts are being renewed or extended. Oh, okay. So it is on the absolute last gasps of life. Thank goodness. <laughs> Flash is still there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, but it, 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 at least we have a timeline. 2020. Getting close. Getting close. Um, this may affect you, Alison. Another exclamation mm-hmm. point with an American flag next to it. Check your Verizon Fios Quantum Gateway G110 router now. Apparently, there's a really critical update being pushed out of those by Verizon. And you'd really want to make sure that if there's an update pending on your router, that you let your router do its updatey thing. Excuse me, I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, in the middle of the show, what could possibly go wrong? Oh, wait. <laughs> Yikes. Um, and then just to give users of ad-blocking software a heads up, a whole class of vulnerability has been found that affects lots of ad blockers um, and they're all in the process of updating themselves. So known to be affected are Adblock, Adblock Plus, which are completely separate products from completely separate companies, which I didn't know, and Ublock, but not Ublock Origin because Ublock Origin is actually also completely different from Ublock. Again, I don't know what's going on there that no one's heard of um, trademark law, but there we go. Um, So those products have updates in the works and many other ad blockers will be getting updates too. So if you use an ad blocker, expect it to update itself and apply said update. And just to mention that Drupal have released two critical security updates for those of our listeners who power the website on that very popular platform. Hmm. Notable security news. We have mentioned a few times that there is a patch for WinRAR which fixes a really nasty vulnerability. And unfortunately, WinRAR is one of those apps that's old enough that no one thought there was any need to have any sort of notification update, let alone auto-update feature. So a vulnerable version of WinRAR will never offer you an update. Which is why it's being actively exploited very proactively by the bad guys at the moment. We all knew this would happen, well, it is happening. So if you have friends or family and you think they may have WinRAR installed, you need to help them install the newest version of WinRAR. Uh, The people at WinRAR have done their best. They have emailed all of the customers who have legitimately bought the app, which I think is a lot fewer people than are using the app. And also, I bought WinRAR back when I was a Windows user, but I don't have that email address anymore, so I never got the warning. And that's true, I'm sure, of a lot of people. Oh, wow. So it is vital that every user of WinRAR update themselves. This is an absolutely critical vulnerability, like really dangerous stuff. Total takeover (laughs) of your PC by visiting the wrong website level of dangerous. It's like really bad. Yikes. Details have been released of an as yet unpatched zero day in all versions of Windows. That is scary. The reason it is in this section of the show notes is because it's a very simple how to stay safe. Do not, under any circumstances, ever open a file with the extension MHT. Hmm. You're almost, it's almost certain you will never legitimately come across one of these files because they're the Microsoft format for archiving web pages. So if you in IE go file, save web page as, you'll get an MHT file. 
Just don't so open you're, them. You're showing it, say, don't open any MHT files from untrusted sources. Yeah, well, because... I'm a trusted source, Bart, and if I sent you an MHT, would you open it? No, but... <laughs> right, so you actually mean don't open any MHTs. Well, no, but if you're the kind of person who saves web pages, if I just say that, someone's going to shout at me for saying, but my, my uncle sends me web pages in MHT all the time. It's how we share, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But yeah, I don't think there's... I, I, I've never seen one. I didn't even know they existed, so... Anyway, if you open one, you're in real danger, so don't open them. Um, starting with the next feature update to Windows 10, which is due out in May, Microsoft is changing how it does updates for the better. Hmm. So monthly and security updates are going to remain mandatory, but they will be deferrable for one week at a time for a maximum of five times. So, interesting. yeah, that's an interesting halfway house between where things stand at the moment for home users, which is thou shalt have us the update now and sod your schedule. Um, so this is definitely preferable. Uh, and then they're also breaking out the feature updates from these monthly running security updates. The feature updates will be deferrable indefinitely until that feature version you're on is about to stop being supported and then you will be forced to upgrade so that you continue to get security updates so in other words oh, you will be that's able that's a neat compromise isn't it, it it's very clever yeah, yeah it, it, it's 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 perfect actually to be honest so in reality that means you can stay on a feature update for 18 months if you update quickly and you're going to have to keep on top of your security updates well that sounds like a win-win to me yeah. So, yeah, well done, Microsoft. I'm glad to see you found the middle way. Um, I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but it's news. The UK government is getting very serious about regulating the internet. These two news stories broke in the last two weeks. So, first off, the government have put out what they call a white paper. It's basically a proposal that could become legislation if at some stage in the future, basically. So, right now, it's in the public comment phase. But they have proposed a law which would give media companies like Facebook, Twitter, etc., a duty of care, which means that if something really nasty happens and they are found to have been negligent, then they're liable. So can they just start filing that against Facebook right now? Well, obviously not until the law goes into effect, but yes. So the, basically, it, it's not a case that if, a, if something nasty happens, the tech company is to blame. It's if something nasty happens and it can be shown that they knew this was a problem and they did nothing about it, then they become liable. And that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. And, you know. The, the devil's going to be in those details on whether they, what the definition of knew about it, like knew about the fact that you had a culture where storing people's passwords in plain text was an okay thing. Well, I, I mean, I, we we have this concept all over the place, right? Negligence exists in all other aspects of the law. It's kind of weird that it's never been applied to IT. I mean, wh- why is oh, yeah. why is running Twitter different to building a car or selling a chainsaw? Right? The, yeah. the, the Pinto is negligence. Yeah. And it, yep. So, you know. Uh, and then, continuing the UK's prudishness on pornography to some extent. The UK government have had a few interesting laws over the years. Um, Anyway, mandatory age verification on porn sites in the UK starting in June this year. So they talked about this a bunch on the Daily Tech News show, and there's one other bit of interesting detail. It's 
only sites that have more than one third of their content is porn. I guess that's to stop, like, if someone puts one image on Flickr that someone decides is pornography, does that mean that the whole of Flickr is suddenly a porn site? Right, but it's kind of funny to think about, okay, all right, all right, no, you got to take those two images down because we're, we're at, uh, you know, we're past one third, bring it back a little bit. And I think in order to see the sites that are porn, not only do you have to be 18, I think you have to register in some way. No, no, they're not doing that. So what they're saying is... That there was like an ID card they were talking about. No, no, they're offering they're offering a mechanism for verifying age, but they're explicitly actually saying, we do not want you to verify identity, we want you to verify age. So you don't have to know who is visiting your porn site, you don't have to keep a record of who, but you have to take steps to prove that whoever they are, they are over 18. And the standard way of doing that is making sure they have a credit card, to be honest. That's how the internet has been doing it for years. Hmm. So the law actually explicitly says this is not about tracking who's looking at pornography. It's just about making it as difficult as possible for under 18s. I got to find out what they were talking about in DTNS because they did, they continuously talked about a card that you would need to verify. Now, maybe not verify your identity. Um, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I saw that the government were offering an optional service that sites could use. But I didn't see, I did, my reading of it, it wasn't compulsory. I could be wrong. Because a lot of, over here, for example, when I go to wineandmore.com or totalwine.com, when I go in, it says, when's your birthday? And if you know how to use a scroll wheel to get yeah. to a date that's <laughs> older than 21, you can get in. So is that the same thing? That's you know? not age verification. That's, no. Mm-mm. No, that's not the same thing. <laughs> right. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is this... No, no, the law is, is verification. I mean, it, okay, I didn't go into every little nitty detail, but it's been normal yeah. here that you have to prove ownership of a credit card is a way that that's often been done. Hmm. Because you obviously can't get credit if you're under 18 for a whole raft of other reasons, right? So you're piggybacking off the fact that the banking sector have responsibilities. Hmm. Anyway, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't spend all that much time reading the details because I didn't think you'd, I, I thought you'd want to pass over that one quickly, actually. <laughs> well, it is just, it, it's comical, uh, I think. <laughs> just the one third, like, that's eh, okay. Well, there's, the, there's also the card. classic, right? No one can define what pornography is. The closest we've come is, is a, a famously a US High Court judge saying, I know it when I see it. Great. You're dead now, so how do we know it? Maybe this is where it was. Uh, I'm reading on BBC.com. High street stores and new agents will also sell separate age verification cards to adults after carrying out face-to-face checks, according to the government. Dubbed porn passes by the media, the idea is the users could type in a code and print it on the cards in a pornographic website to gain access to their content. Right, so you prove to a shop that you're over 18, then you get this anonymous card, which you can then use to prove to a website that you're over 18 because you have one of these cards, which is actually a very clever way of doing it. Yeah. Because there's no way to ever connect those two things together, right? Right, right. But who's going to go do that? I don't know. There's ways around it. Anyway. Of course there's ways around it. But the thing is, right, I mean, we have laws against smoking and stuff. That doesn't mean it's impossible for children to smoke, but it is. it does still make it harder. So it's not without value. Speed bump. Yeah. Yeah, speed bumps are important. I cycle mm-hmm. over quite a few of them. Yeah, they, <laughs> they have uses. Anyway. Um, security researchers have shown that Samsung's new underscreen fingerprint readers are dramatically easier to spoof than the traditional fingerprint readers like Apple's Touch ID or the ones used on older Samsung's phones. 
And the reason for that is that the underscreen readers have to use a completely different technology. Um, they're not capacitive. They actually use ultrasound to just bounce sound waves off your finger. And so the only thing they detect is shape. They don't detect any other properties of the thing. So, oh, so not blood or heat or anything like none that? None of those other signals that Apple use, which is why if you have particularly dry hands, you can't use Touch ID. Why if you're too cold or too hot, you can't use Touch ID. You know, the the, 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 the traditional sensors do all sorts of stuff to make sure that it's finger-like, which is why if you want to, you can fool them, but you have to 3D print a certain type of rubber with a certain capacitance and you have to heat it in the microwave for a certain amount of seconds. It right. can be done, but it's a, it's a kerfuffle. These mm-hmm. ultrasound ones are not a kerfuffle. The security researchers who literally only just figured out how to do this, so this is not an advanced technique, they just figured out how to do it in a weekend, because these phones are only just out. Um, They can do it in 13 minutes from photograph of wine glass to fully working into the phone, including the 3D printing. Because all that matters is the shape. So you take a picky. Ironically, he took a picture with his... Uh, with his actual 10s or whatever this model is, I forgot to put into the show notes. Um, so we actually it's S10, it's something S10. Uh, he took a picture with the S10 of his fingerprint on a wine glass. He just took a sip from, and 13 minutes later, he had unlocked his phone with a fake finger. Wow! Which that's just too easy. That's so. And th- th- my my personal opinion on this is I should say opinion, not option. Uh, my opinion on this is that fingerprint sensors are always less secure than Face ID. But these ones are particularly insecure. This is token security, not... This is back to those terrible fingerprint scanners on laptops. This is not good security. Why is this just coming out now? This has been out for a little while. Has it? it? I thought it was... Oh, maybe it's new. That Maybe just the S10 is new, and I'm thinking of just in general their fingerprint sensors. No, they've had fingerprint sensors, but they've been traditional. This is the first of the underscreen ones, okay. which everyone ah, thought gotcha. Apple were going to do, and then Apple went, actually, do you know something? We're going to do Face ID instead. Yeah. And I think Apple I just did a post uh, last week about how I actually have going back to Touch ID on an iPad. I think I like it better on an iPad. Face ID I like better on a phone, you know, hundred to one. But Touch ID I think is like two to one. I like it better on an iPad. Until I started to cook with my iPad as my device for putting my recipes on, mm. I would have agreed yeah. with you. Now I just find the fact that I can unlock my iPad while I've, my hands are covered in olive oil With your or whatever nose it is. and your knuckles and all those things. Yeah, I, I, you know, in all goopy finger situations, uh, I would agree with that. But the rest of the time, realizing I'm I'm accidentally doing half a sit up every time is now what irritates me. <laughs> the amount of times I see that bloody warning telling me I'm covering the camera is ridiculous. They need the, the so. Version yeah, two, they got to fix that, don't they? Yeah, version two has to have two of those. One left, one right. I won't be covering both. Just use the one I'm not covering. That is, that is the solution. Or four of them. There's four sides on that screen. It's infinitely yeah. rotatable. They have to fix that. That is ridiculous. Okay, good. The fact that it needs a cute icon. Like, the first time it happens, you're like, oh, that's very clever. And then you're like, no, it isn't. <laughs> this should not be needed. This is a sign that you haven't been very clever. Yep, that was the one that, that's actually what I said, where I said, no, this is just, it no. was adorable the first couple of times, and now I'm tired of it. Yep. Uh, okay, uh, there's powerful new spyware targeting iOS. This is state-level stuff. 
The good news, if you can call it such a thing, is that this isn't available through the App Store because you can't do that through the App Store. So this needs to be side-loaded with an enterprise certificate, so yet more abuses of enterprise certificates, uh, which means that in order to actually get affected, infected by this, you need to be socially engineered into accepting a provisioning profile. So hmm. for the five millionth time, unless you're doing something where you explicitly expect a provisioning profile, like, say, joining your company's mobile device management, you should not be accepting provisioning profiles. Or installing 1.1.1.1. Yes, because that is a VPN profile. Yes, you're right. But that, it probably, I think they label them slightly differently. I should double check. That. Actually... I'm going to sneak it. I'm going to sneak a point in on that. I took that off my phone because it does appear as a VPN provisioning profile, even though it's not a VPN. So when I go on to an, in a network I don't recognize, it says I'm on a VPN and I don't know whether my VPN is actually kicked in or not. So I took it back off until it is a VPN at what time, which time I will be happy to put it back on. And that's an implementation detail. Because basically, there's, there's not an API for what they're doing because they're doing something weird. So the only API available is the VPN API. And ironically, the VPN API allows you to have a non-VPN VPN. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. tech is weird. Bad protocol. <laughs> um, shocking absolutely no one, the Wi-Fi Alliance have managed to release WPA3 with a whole bunch of security holes. <laughs> so... <laughs> They have previous WEP, WPA, WPA2, and now WPA3. So the Wi-Fi Alliance insist on developing their security and encryption in absolute secrecy, allowing no vetting or validation by any experts whatsoever. Every time they do this, it bites them on the backside and makes them look stupid. And every time they tell us, no, 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 this time will be different. We're going to do exactly the same thing, but we're going to get a different outcome. <laughs> Isn't that the definition of insanity? Yes, it is. And lo and behold, it's they've been bitten again. Uh, it's got a cool name, mm-hmm. especially given that Game of Thrones is doing its thing. It's called Dragon Blood because the bit of the pro- the bit of the protocol they got wrong is called the Dragonfly Handshake. Mm. Um, the good news is there's almost no WPA3 routers actually out there, so this is early enough. And there are firmware updates that, in theory, all the vendors should be pushing out to the handful of devices that exist. Uh, but really, the bottom line here is that the Wi-Fi Alliance continue to be... Irres- I'll just put it, in my humble opinion, they're being stupid and irresponsible. They're putting all of our security at risk with a flawed and broken model. And the security researchers underline this point infinitely more eloquently than I just did. Actually, it's a big point of their their paper, is how this was always going to happen. And goodness knows what else is in here. This is just what we found in the few weeks we've been looking at this. They could have done it during the certification process, but no. Anyway. Um, using a so-called honeypot device, security researchers have been trying to quantify how much sort of internet background radiation there is. Little scripts trying default usernames and passwords against IoT devices. And what they have found is that on average, if you put a camera out there on the internet with an IP address, someone will try to log into it with default usernames and passwords 13 times a second. Oh. So the advice is very clearly avoid having your devices on the internet. Uh, definitely, definitely use change the passwords so that they're not default. And turn off UPnP. 
because UPnP allows these devices to put themselves on the internet, even though you have a NAT router. So if you leave UPnP on, you may think you're completely safe because your IoT device is behind the NAT router, but that IoT device has the power to reprogram your router and set up automatic port forwarding to itself without your knowledge or consent, because that's what UPnP is for, which is why you should turn it off. I have mine off, but just saying to keep your IoT devices off the internet is like saying, you know, here's a ball, don't go near a basketball court. No, 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 no. Having it on your network is not having it on the internet, unless you have W... uh, I know, but there's... The fun is, like, okay, I've got a webcam looking at my my living room. Right. If I'm home, I can walk into the living room and look at it. The only value is to have it when I'm not home. So having it on the internet is its reason for existing. That's not having it on the internet. Let let me, I'm trying to explain that's not having it on the internet. That's it, you, that's it making an outbound connection to a cloud service. So you can't use, you can't be a random person on the internet and connect to that camera. You only get there through the cloud service. What I'm talking about is having the IP address on the internet, which will only happen if you don't have a router. So if you're actually putting it on the internet, that's not true. If you've got IPv6 on that, that IP address is visible on the internet. Only if your router is not firewalling IPv6, which almost all of them do. IPv6 when I is not a free IPv6, bypass. When I asked you about IPv6, I had heard on the Mac Geek Ad that your IP address would be visible on the internet, and I didn't believe them, and I called you and asked you, no, and no. you said, yes, it will be. Visible, as in they will know what your IP address is, not accessible. They will know that your IP address Mm. is whatever it is if you connect to them. But that does not mean that anyone on the internet can connect to that IP address. It will be visible but not accessible. Okay, so you didn't put any kind of qualifications around the don't put it on the internet statement? Now I don't don't really know how you would ever put it on the internet. Uh, I mean, other than UPnP. Okay. As a corporate user, you may actually have public IP addresses. So if you have a business and you're putting up security cameras, a lot of organizations will own IP space, right? Universities will own IP addresses. Corporations will own IP addresses. If you just put it online, if you're in this situation, it will be on the internet. A home user, you're usually safe with one exception. If you have UPnP enabled on your router... The device okay. can put itself on the internet, despite the fact that you wouldn't have done it by accident because it would have taken you effort. Okay. But it can self-service its way on. Okay. So really, the, the, re- the, the two takeaways from this are always change the passwords uh, and turn off UPnP. And they're kind of advice we've always been giving people. So that's kind of the good news here. Mm-hmm. Is, as long as you're doing what we've always said, you're you're still doing the right thing. Uh, Google Chrome for iOS currently contains an unpatched bug that allows malicious sites to bypass the browser's pop-up protections, which allows attackers to take over the browser in such a way that you can't do what you want to do and you get plastered with ads you can't get rid of. Unfortunately, that was a hypothetical until five minutes before recording time when the news story just broke, saying that half a billion iOS users have been affected by an attack, which they're calling the Easter attack because it just hit today. Wow. And there are also completely unconfirmed reports that this may affect Safari, but no one's been able to confirm it. So at the time of recording, that is a maybe. But since they're both WebKit. Since they're both WebKit, it's plausible. 
Yeah. It's, it is definitely plausible. 500 million iOS users have been attacked by this. Yeah. And it came out in the last five minutes. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, the, the bug has been around a bit longer, but the attacks have really ramped up today. So in the run up to the mm. Easter weekend. Yay. Yeah, isn't that great? Uh, so the advice that was in the show notes and just before recording time was avoid using uh, Chrome for iOS. That seems to be good advice for the moment, even better than I thought. Uh, but if it affects iOS too, I don't know what advice I can give. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Google have started permanently banning bad faith developers from their Play Store. So we were talking about all the, the changes Google were making in a recent security medium. Uh, a yeah. whole bunch of developers have just found themselves permanently removed from the App Store for breaking the rules. They used to just get away with a slap on the wrist, and now Google have said, you know something, we're fed up of you. Sod off. Which is wonderful. <laughs> good. Uh, also in the good news column, um, anyone running Android 7 Nougat or newer, and with Google's Play Store installed, can now use their Google phone as a hardware token for WebAuth and slash Fido 2. In other words, your phone has just become a YubiKey, but as best as I can tell, it will only work with Google Sites for now. So it's a sort but of a... that's cool. It is cool. That's really... It would be great if this gets expanded out to be just a generic WebAuth and device for any website, but even just being able to secure all of your Google um, stuff so easily and so well, that, that's great. So this is really well done, Google, for this one. And continuing on the well done, you see, I've put all the good news stories at the end here. Uh, <laughs> Apple also got a well done. Um, there has been a problem with apps scamming people into signing up for subscriptions without realizing that's what they're doing. Apple have basically put a really big plank in the way there. You now have to confirm twice to buy a subscription. And the second time, it's an Apple pop, it's an Apple dialogue which lays out the terms basically. You are signing up to a subscription. It will rebuild blah, you know, monthly, weekly, whatever. Each time you will rebuild blah, this will never end unless you explicitly stop it. So it's like... I wonder if they're going to do it on their own subscriptions, like on Apple Music and Apple News Plus and all the others. 99.9% sure the answer is yes. This is part of the actual how subscriptions now work. This is, this is an OS level. Subscriptions have a double lock. Maybe we should have a betting pool on that one. You're probably right. I'm just in a cynical well, mood today. If they're not doing it on their own, then the antitrust cases they're facing in the Netherlands and Europe as a whole are going to be a lot more difficult for them. Yeah. I hope they're not that stupid. I'd be very sad if they were that. No, that would make me sad. Um, Just a little PSA tip and advice. We're into suggested reading now. Um, PSA's tips and advice... Based on a story that was kind of funny-ish, um, toddler locks father out of iPad for 25.5 million minutes, or until the year 2067. Um, I saw that one. That was great. It was great, but it does raise a serious point. You must have backups enabled on your iOS devices, because if you enter the wrong password over and over again, you will get locked out eventually. Now, it takes raw effort to do this you basically need to spend three hours hammering at an ipad to make it lock up that tight but only a toddler can do the same if you've ever yep. played like roll a ball to a toddler and back you'll realize you're in it for like seven years <laughs> yep 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 so adults could never do this because they'd be utterly frustrated long before then but a toddler no problemo 
The internet is actually full of reports of this. So there's a really good article from Tidbits explaining what's going on, why it's going on, how it works, the steps to recover an iPad. So you can get the iPad working again, you just can't get your data back unless you have a backup, which is why it's really important to enable your iCloud backups. I bet the toddler just uh, clicked every single time that he made the uh, his father play the movie Frozen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's 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 something shiny that moves when you touch it. I'm sure toddler me would have hammered away at that forever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, notable breaches and privacy violations. We have a call to action here. Instagram users, change your password. We talked a few weeks ago that Facebook were logging passwords in plain text and we said it was very bad of them. And at the time, we thought it was your Facebook password you only had to change. Uh, they said that, yeah, we there have been a few thousand Instagram accounts affected, but we've we've told all those people, so that's grand. Well, they had a wee recount and it turns out it's actually 600 million. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Well, it's good that they went and found this, though. Oh, and I just opened up uh, one password and uh, to find my Instagram password to change it while you're chatting, and it says compromised login. Yay. Data stored by this website may have been compromised. Excellent. One password I do like for the, the Watchtower win. is so proactive. Yeah. Um. Then there's a whole bunch here of just not good news, but it's all big news, so I kind of feel I have to tell you about it, even though I know it's going to get you down. But I'll pick you up again with a palate cleanser, so it's okay. Okay. Good. Um. Despite not being, they don't explicitly say they don't, but they're, they, when you read the terms of service, it doesn't imply they do. Bloomberg have now revealed that Amazon employ thousands of human beings to listen to and transcribe a random sampling of Alexa audio recordings. And it's, yeah, yeah not good. Uh, also in the not good column, security researchers have done a wee bit of an audit on the uh, hospitality industry. And what they have discovered is that hotels are terrible at security. Two in three hotel websites leak user data up the Yazoo. Um, They are working with these hotels to try to stop them being so stupid, but... Yeah, anyway, suggested reading. Um, Oh, can I say something good about Instagram? Oh, yes, they, um When I changed my password, uh, the after one password said, okay, you're good there now, but did you know they offer two-factor authentication? Which I did not know. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yes. Good. Another place you can turn that on. Always good. Um, Microsoft have now fixed a bug which for quite some time allowed hackers to read the not, um, the not corporate versions of outlook.com and hotmail so basically for the last six months they've sort of been open the door is now closed but it was open for six months wait so outlook.com is a website hotmail is a service are you saying if an outlook is a is a client no outlook.com is basically like hotmail only branded differently outlook.com is is a web service for doing calendar and email okay I don't really know the difference hmm. between Outlook.com and Hotmail, apart from the branding. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if I went to Outlook.com, I think I could log in with my Microsoft password. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes. Which would mean the Microsoft passwords. But it's well, not the passwords that were hacked. It's the content of your mailboxes. Um, and it's not the full content. It's things like subject lines and stuff. It's the metadata. So, which basically left so what, do you have to ch- what do you have to do about it? Nothing. Though? 
it was open for six months. If there was something really secret in there, no, it's, it's already gone. No, it's but no. it's not change your password. It's not change your password. It's not a. This isn't a password breach. This is a data leak. Oh, awesome! Yeah. <laughs> um, Facebook. I suppose they've owned up about it, which I guess is something. So, you know, the way we talked last time that it was really stupid that Facebook were asking people to give Facebook the username and password to your email address so Facebook could log into your email to prove you're you and that they stopped doing it. Turns out that while they were doing it, which they were doing um, for a since 2016, their software was apparently accidentally, or so Facebook say, downloading your address book while it did it. So they were stealing your contacts while they were... So basically, I said, you know, you're, it's really stupid to trust Facebook with your username and password. I was right. I didn't know how right I was, but I was right because they were stealing your address book. Jeez. And you just can't make it up. Like... Every, every day, every... All, always. I know. 1.5 million users had their contacts uploaded without notice or consent. But Facebook say they'll delete the data. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's the low point of today. Actually, no, it isn't. Sorry. Facebook. So 1.5 million people agreed to give Facebook their email I know, that's kind of worrying. Although Facebook have billions of users, so maybe it's a small percentage and I shouldn't be as panicked about it, but that's like, oh my God. You know how I'm always telling you that uh, you can't count on the ability to ever train a user anything ever. Right, but this doesn't help because Facebook is a reputable company. So Facebook normalized the practice of asking for random email usernames and passwords. That's such a dangerous, dangerous precedent to set. Which is why oh, I was yeah. so cranky at them last week, before I realized they were stealing your address book while they were doing it. Yeah. Oh, it's, just, it's, it, it's cranky making. And I'm not done being cranky at Facebook. Um, if you deactivate your Facebook account, that seems to be a pretty meaningless thing to do because uh, Facebook just keep on tracking you and building up the profile on you as if you hadn't disabled it. Uh, de- sorry, deactivated it. Uh, that's what reporters from CNET have found. So yay to that. I don't know what the point of deactivating is if it doesn't stop the tracking. Uh, Facebook have added a new transparency tool that's supposed to show you what advertisers have bought your data. Uh, but unfortunately, when people actually try to use it, they realize it's unintelligible. Um, so, poop. Mm. On the other hand, because I... do Oh, sugar, I got these stories in the wrong order. I'm going to read these in a different order than they are in the show notes because I really don't want to end on being cranky. Okay. Uh, so, some more documents have leaked showing internal Facebook emails, memos, presentations, etc. Basically, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to leverage Facebook user data to beat down their rivals, it, while simultaneously telling the world how sorry they were and how they really cared about your privacy. To say that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg come out of this looking mm, evil, I, I I can't think of another word. I'm sorry. Poor intent. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, dishonest, utterly insincere in all of everything they say. Gah. Followed by Facebook, followed the patent to use image recognition to scan your photos, not to look for your face so they can tag you, but to look for brand icons so they can advertise at you better. 
So that if your photograph contains oh. your car, they now know that, oh, you like Toyotas or Hondas or Acuras or Teslas or whatever you're having yourself. I wonder, I've, I've always wondered about stuff like that because they, they tend to, like, if I go to CVS and I buy Sherman bathroom tissue, I will get a coupon for not Sherman bathroom tissue, which I find fascinating. It's like, no, you already know what I like. Right, but actually that's been done by, that's slightly different because they know that that's actually the not Charmin company buying access to the information. Oh, I understand. But that's exactly what will probably happen here is you yes. see me holding up a container of Charmin bathroom tissue in my photo for some reason and it'll scan it and go, ooh, she uses Charmin. We could sell this ad to someone not Charmin. I yeah. I, I mean, the way that works odd. here, um, I mean... I know what I'm doing in this regard, right? So I understand that when I use a loyalty card, I am getting cheap stuff in exchange for my privacy. I understand this. But I find that hilarious that if I buy one brand of tea bag, I am guaranteed to get a 50% off coupon for a different brand of tea bag in my next month's mailing. Because the competing right, right. brand has bought the right to give cheap tea bags to people who don't currently buy their tea bags. Now, I have no yep. brand loyalty. So I just buy whatever is dirt cheap. And then next week when the other brand are trying to buy me back, I buy their stuff for half price. And I just keep doing that because I don't care. So this is perfect for you. So it works really well for me. So I'm basically, I know I'm giving up my privacy. I understand completely. It's, it's, it's an informed decision that saves me a bloody fortune. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so now that I've said all those terrible things, now let's spin back here to one positive story. Uh, Facebook have actually shown signs of some change in attitude. They banned a whole bunch of far-right UK groups. They just chucked them off the platform. So that does signal a change in attitude, which is only a positive thing. Hang on, though. Hang on, okay. big boy here. Um, just chucking somebody because they're... Politics aren't what you don't like. That's not necessarily no, what no, we're looking sorry, for. Sorry, these are these are hate groups. These are not just ah. That would be a different way of saying what you said. Well, far right means not just sorry. Okay, here far right means Nazi, as in actual extremists. Yeah, far right doesn't mean that is definitely not a generic. I mean, it can mean that, but far right can mean super conservative, uh, extremely religious. It can mean you know really hates all government regulation bar anything. Okay, um, I guess we've hit a cultural difference then because here the term is synonymous with terrorist, basically. Wait, now, terrorist? Well, no, as in person advocating violence. Okay, yeah, no, definitely not. Huh. Definitely not a synonym here, not at all. Ah, okay, I mean, well, I'm glad it, you clarified it, that then because... If you keep going to the right, maybe, but not ne necessarily. Would that be extreme right? No, no, that would be Nazi. That would be hate okay. group. Hate group. Anyway, mm. then, yes. So th these are like the British Nazi Party, those kind of people. Okay. So that is that is definitely a change in attitude for the better. Um, that was the second story. I was frantically copy and pasting as we were getting ready to record. Um, now, unfortunately, we move from Facebook to Google just to say that the New York Times have found that if you enable that feature in Google called location history, which is a feature I have had turned off for quite some time, uh, if you enable that, all of your data goes into something called the Sensor Vault. And uh, UK law enforcement routinely get given access to that. They don't ask for a person's location. They do the opposite. They tell Google, uh, who was in blah location? And they give a geofence. And then Google reply back and say, yeah, all these people were there. So just so you know. Hmm. 
you can turn it off. Just turn off the location history feature and that goes away. Does it really, though? <laughs> I believe it does now that they were caught with their pants down. I'm okay. pretty sure there was a story about them being caught with their pants down on that one. By the way, I want to excuse Bart for uh, using just plain far right. Uh, the Mac Observer was the exact quote was what he had said was UK far right ban signals your shift by Facebook. Yes, actually, that's uh, just to underline again in the show notes, when the text is a link, it means the text is from the website. And when the text is not a link, it means I typed it. Yeah. But kind people of a listening subtle. aren't necessarily. People listening can't see the links. That's why I'm saying it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, in terms of opinion and analysis, um, there's a really good article explaining how apps do tracking. It's really good. It's just not happy. But it's really good. So now, we're, now we need palate cleansing. Um, so we have, for the first time in the history of humanity, taken a picture of a black hole, and I'm really bloody excited about it. So I have three Ooh. ways of cleansing your palate with black holes. Uh, the first is a video which is from Vox, um, which I have for some reason linked to Loop Inside, I've just realized. But anyway, it's embedded there. Why this black hole photo is such a big deal? Seven minutes long, really good. Oh, cool. Um, XKCD then entered the fray, not with a joke, but with an like really informative infographic. So how big is this black silhouette of a black hole? Well, the XKCD chap has very kindly drawn our solar system at the same scale over the donut. And basically, Pluto is well inside the black bit. Really, Voyager 1 is sort of at the edge of the donut. And we know Voyager 1 is outside of our solar system, right? Yep, it has passed the heliopause. Which is the bit where the sun's right. influence gives way to interstellar Past space. That's the Oort cloud, cloud, right? Yeah. Or it's, it's still in the Oort cloud, I think. Well, we're not sure how far the Oort cloud goes, which is one right. of the reasons it's so fun to have Voyager out there. But yeah, Voyager is now in a part of space where the sun is not dominant. It's in actual interstellar space, which is kind of cool. So cool. Yeah. And that's still like just at the edge of this black hole. Yeah. It's wow. big. That's crazy. When they say supermassive, they weren't joking. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. big. Um, and because it is always important to point out the the fact that women in STEM are doing really cool stuff, and therefore, if you're young and female and you, you're interested in computers, don't let anyone tell you not to. There is room for you here. <laughs> we want you here. And you could help us take pictures of black holes, as proven by Katie Bowman, who is, in fact, the female computer scientist who built the algorithms that made it possible to take pictures of black holes. Right. Come join us. Yay. The water's lovely. We're not as nearly as bad as we used to be. <laughs> My uh, favorite picture, uh, there's a, a famous picture of uh, Margaret Hamilton in front of the uh, giant stack of printouts. Yes. She was the one that, that helped uh, land us on the moon, us. And uh, yeah, you get anyway, to say us on that one. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> and then beside, right? But it, so that's superimposed with a picture of Katie Bowman with a stack of hard drives that she had the uh, algorithm on. So that that was fun too. Yeah, I, I love the fact that the, the only there was so much data from these eight arrays of telescopes that the internet just couldn't handle it, and so they flew hard drives around the world. Oh, did they really? Wow. Giant stack of hard drives. You saw the stack. It was in the picture. Yeah. Okay, they're not like, right. you know, two stack. terabyte hard drives. They're they're big stunkers of hard drives. It's astonishing how much data that took. And then I'm going to let you take the lead because you, you sent us along uh, the, the final palate cleanser. 
Yeah, no, this isn't about black holes, but this was hilarious. Someone named Maladen Prejdik posted, uh, the, the caption says, this is brilliant. Apparently, Sean is the HR boss. It's a, uh, it's a picture of a password change sign-up sheet. It says, if you'd like to change your password, please fill out the form below and we will change your password on the system you dictate. You indicate. And it says full name, system, current password, and new password, and people are filling it out. <laughs> and someone put a sticker on it that says, Come see me, Sean. <laughs> oh, this is brilliant. one of the ones you keep for the ages and you say, you know, don't do this. <laughs> Fishing by IT staff. It's astonishing. Maybe they did it just to see if they would, you know, maybe it was a test. So those are the people who get the extra training. Well, now someone wrote down current password is password and new password is password too. So I'm guessing maybe they knew. Yeah, it looks like Jack H, whoever he is, was, 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 yeah, he was. He was playing. He was playing there very clearly. (laughs) Yeah, but the other four, maybe not. It's, All right. Well, I mean, hey, this was a uh, fun-filled, fascinating, interesting episode of uh, Security Bits. I loved it. Oh, well, good. And, uh, of course, you know what I'm going to say now. Until next time, stay patched and stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to become a patron? Go to podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join the live chat room, you can do that in podfeed.com slash chat. If you want to join in on the fun of the entire live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live like Ian Lessing did for the first time. You can do that on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Enjoy the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.